Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome into the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. Thanks for joining us again today. You know you can find all of our events at storycraft.cafe. Go by and join in the this community that is for writers by writers. Find your tribe there and also be alert to things that are coming up. Today's episode is an interview with Matthew Quick that uh, happened just today. This was live just a, a few minutes ago when you're hearing this. And uh, you, uh, if when we have another interview, you can join in uh, live at YouTube, join in the conversation, pitch some questions, comments, and see it live. Thank you for subscribing here, though, and all of our interviews later come to the podcast, and this is a great way on your commute, uh, you know, or sitting at your desk working or, you know, on a, on a long walk in the evenings. You can absorb some of the writerly wisdom from people who are out there making it happen. Matthew Quick today on the show. Be sure to join us uh, again later this week. Go over to storycraft.cafe and watch for what's coming up next. We are live here in the StoryCraft Cafe today. I am super excited to have Matthew Quick on the show with me. Matthew has a, uh, a fairly new release. It is called We Are the Light. What an amazing book. Uh, Matthew was kind enough to send me the book uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Matthew, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you when uh, when the, the book was delivered, I sat in my favorite reading chair uh later that night it was about eight o'clock i guess and had my lamp on and you know just had everything the way i like it and the next thing i know i look up and like three hours had gone by and i was you know down to the you know the last you know quarter of the book and i didn't want it to end and ah. i i I absolutely fell into the story. Um, we're going to talk more about it in a minute, so people may not uh, know quite what I'm talking about. But in the beginning, I felt like I was eavesdropping a little bit on someone else's experience. And I, it felt a little disconcerting in the beginning, um, but I found myself completely bonded with Lucas. Uh, mm. and it, it didn't take long at all. And um, I, I absolutely love what you've done with the book. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much. And, Appreciate uh, that. Thank you for writing welcome. such an amazing book. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So um, before we uh, get into talking specifically about the book, uh, Matthew, I, I was talking with, uh, with someone about the book um, a few days ago, and they said, I think I know who Matthew Quick is. What, what genre does he write in? And I found myself kind of scratching my head, and I was like, "Well, how do you describe a Matthew Quick book?" Because the the new book is very similar um, to your previous books, and um, you know, it it's a it's a departure in some ways. Um, mm. But it 
it has all the hallmarks of a Matthew Quick book, if that makes any sense at all. So when someone asks you, what kind of books do you write? Um, how do you answer that? And where, where do you see if, if we walk into a bookstore, because we, we know that genres are, are really helpful for pointing someone where to find a particular yeah. kind of book they're looking for. Um, where would you say that you live in the bookstore? It's a really interesting question. And I do get this a lot. And I feel as though my answer is eternally disappointing people because I don't know that um, I live squarely in a genre. You know, my YA work, the young adult work is obviously easy to say, you know, this is coming of age um, YA lit, uh, which is a lot easier to classify. But my adult stuff, um, I would say it lives somewhere in between commercial and literary, um, you know, and, and depending on what chapter you're reading, I might lean one way or the other. Um, but I think one of the ways to describe it is that I write mental health lit. You know, I think that I'm always writing about mental health issues. Um, I'm writing about um, characters who are having a lot of in internal, not just struggles, but a lot of internal dialogue. So I write first yeah. person um, character driven novels, um, you know, which is interesting because they a lot of my books have been option for film. So you would think that uh, Hollywood would be more interested in plot. And so I think that I do have good story arcs, but I think yeah. the engine of my books, they're all about somebody trying to figure out who they are as they are in flux and usually going through some type of crisis. Um, that's what my books are about. Uh, you know, when I try to label them, it becomes difficult because I've told the story many times, but I remember when I published Silver Linings and I was on book tour for the first time, um, I, I didn't really know what I had done. You know, I had just poured my heart out on a page. And yeah. it was funny because people would come through the signing line and I'd have one person come up and shake my hand, being very jovial and say, this was the funniest book I ever read. I laughed all the way through it. Hilarious. Thank you so much. It was an easy, light read. And then the very next person would come through and say, I love this book, but it was so depressing. And I cried through the whole thing. And it was exactly the same book. And so... What I yeah. learned from that um, is that when you're writing character-driven fiction and you're writing from first person, it's largely how that that reader, that individual reader is interacting with the main character. Yes. So for We Are uh, the Light, my main character, Lucas, good game, like how you interact with Lucas is how you're going to label the book. Like, do you sympathize with Lucas? Do you see yourself in Lucas? Do you find like Lucas just so beyond anything that you've ever experienced that you, you find him to be just an interesting or hilarious character? Or does he remind you of something in your life that, that you might be struggling with? There's somebody that you know who has gone through a rough time. Uh, how you answer those questions as you go through the journey of reading the book is largely how you're likely to label that book. And so I think one of the things that I'm really proud of as, as a writer, and if I dare use the word artist, um, is that my books don't, don't tend to fit easily into genres because they're, they're really, um, just me trying to figure things out. They're, they're, they're really Matthew Quick novels. And um, I, I like it 
I take it as a compliment when people say, you know, this is unlike anything that I've read before. That doesn't always help sales, unfortunately. You know, a lot of times people want to read, you know, sometimes people just want to, to read something that they're familiar with. They just want to check out. They just want to turn off their brain and, that, and that's fine. Um, but when I'm writing, it's usually me trying to wrestle with some type of personal demon and get that onto the page and figure it out. So I guess, you know, I haven't really answered your question at all other <laughs> to say um, they're Matthew Quick novels and you've got to give them a try to see if they're for you or not. And I think if you were to listen to this conversation, you'd probably know already whether you're leaning into that or not. Yeah. Well, one one great thing about a, a good character-driven novel is that um, while a great plot-driven novel, one with twists and turns, and oh, is is a lot of fun to read, and I yeah. love those. And um, there are a lot of those books that I hold in very high regard, but I don't necessarily reread them. Uh, I experience that. Occasionally I might, but it, it's yeah. one of those things that once you've experienced it, you've kind of been on that trip. Um, a book like We Are the Light is is something that I could see revisiting um, at different points because I might feel um, differently about Lucas then. I might sympathize more. I might empathize. Um, I might think that he's, you know, completely off his rocker at one point and then another time understand it, it in a, a weird way. Um, I, I could see going on this journey with him, um, you know, a few more times uh, as the years go by. And I, I really think that that is a, uh, uh, a fantastic thing about books like this is that we can, like you said, it, it really depends on what we're bringing to the story yeah. as well as the story that you've told us. And it, I, I can't quite put it into words, but that that's kind of how I'm feeling about the book right now. Well, I also think too, that, um, you know, I tend to write about people that would be in the mental health community. And I think that there are in some ways a barometer for how we're dealing with those things in our, in our own life. You know, like yeah. we come to a novel and we read about, um, you know, so I'll take a voice driven novel that we all know, like the catcher in the rye, which I used to teach in, in high school. And you'd put the catcher in the rye in one kid's hand and they'd be sobbing and mesmerized. And right. they put it in another kid's hand and they'd be like, I think Holden Caulfield's annoying and I hate him and I don't want to read this novel. And and so I think that that's, that's a barometer for where people are. And I think that what I try to do with character-driven novel is to kind of test people's empathy, their tolerance, but also try to get them to, to lean into that, you know, and to, to get people to understand that, you know, when we walk in someone else's shoes, we we try on their brain, especially when you're in a first person intimate novel, like we are the light, you're really stepping inside of Lucas's skull and you're riding around and seeing what it's like to be right. Lucas. That takes a fair amount of empathy. Um, that's not a joy ride. You know, that's not always right. a, a fun thing, but that's a way for us to learn what it's like to be somebody else. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a way to combat, the narcissism that lives within all of us, because narcissism is we don't want to think that anyone else thinks differently than we are. Narcissism is we want what we feel inside to be reflected back to us at all times. So a first person character driven novel 
if that person is like us, it can be very narcissistically rewarding in saying like, oh, that's me in the page. That's just how I think. That's just how I feel. But right. sometimes when it's the complete antithesis of how we feel, um, you know, so for example, when I read Invisible, Invisible Man, um, you know, back in the day by Ralph Ellison, like his narrator was delivering an experience that I didn't know. Like, I didn't know what it was like to be black uh, I think that book takes place in the, in the mid 20th century. I had, I had no idea what that was like, but it was so exciting for me to see the world through this different point of view and to empathize with this character that I had very little in common with other than the fact that we were both human beings. Um, and so for me, when I, someone put that in my hand as a young man, it, it really broadened my sense of what uh, humanity really is because it brought to the picture something that was very different than my reality. I think people have different tolerance for that at different points in their lives. And I think that that's, you know, not just my work, but first person character driven work is always giving us a chance to, to kind of shed that narcissistic impulse and to really lean into seeing that everybody experiences this world in radically different ways. Can we be tolerant of that? Can we understand that? Can we try to lean in and sympathize with these people and not just dismiss them? That that's that's I think is the work of being a reader, in maybe um, the highest the highest level. You know, there's nothing wrong for reading for entertainment. I do it all the time, but I think sometimes when we come to literature, it is an empathy making machine um, right. that really puts us through the paces and allows us to practice. It's like working out the empathy muscle. And right. some of us um, enjoy that more than others, perhaps, at different times in our lives. Yeah. Uh, when I started getting into the book, I learned very quickly um, that I had to reach back uh, to my college psychology days uh, <laughs> and think about Jungian analysis. And um, judging by the white in my beard, it's been a little bit since I was in I'm college. Right there with <laughs> You know, um, we got a but, similar style going on. I like it. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, you, you go with what you're equipped with. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. But there was um, um, when we first started talking about doing this show, um, I I figured out pretty quickly that you had done a good bit of press uh, around the book release. And I tried to avoid most of that because I wanted to come and, and have a. Um, an organic conversation with you based around my, you know, what I took away from the book. Um, but I'm picking up that, that you've been through some stuff uh, in yeah. the last few years. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I absolutely love to talk to people about is this idea of the moment of creation uh, mm -hmm. for a book that, you know, there's, um, maybe there's something that you've been wrestling with, or, or maybe there's a, a new story that you saw on the television and um, you know, whatever, some sort of catalyst and the, the what if game starts playing in your mind. And then maybe a character walks onto the stage of your mind and you're like, who is this guy? And <clears throat> excuse me. And then, you know, and then at some point the book, exist it lives and you as the writer uh, it's your job to to dig it out and to excavate it and to polish it up and and then you know we're holding something like we are the light in our hands um what was that moment of creation like for you for this book 
this, I mean, it's a little bit of a story um, and it goes over years, but, um, you know, this book probably started um, gestating, you know, forming in my head when I heard about the, the shooting in Aurora, Colorado in the movie theater. And I am somebody who's always gone to the theater regularly. I'm a big fan of movies. My first yeah. date with my wife was to the movie theater in Philadelphia, the Ritz Art House Theater. And so we've always considered the movie theater um, somewhat of a, a storytelling church for us. You know, we yeah. would go religiously, like we'd go every week, um, but also we would go to study story. You know, and it was a place where the lights would come down and it would get quiet and you'd look at these God-sized images on the screen that were illuminated in front of you and you would, you would transcend your, your everyday experience. And so Alicia and I were always not just having that wonderful transcendent experience that, that movies can provide, but also trying to deconstruct it and figure out how do you do this? You know, how do you make this work? And, and so the movie theater was a bit of a temple for us. And when the shooting happened, it felt um, like a violation. You know, obviously, you know, it's it's horrific. Most for everybody was affected by it in Colorado. But even after um, the shooting at Columbine, I was a teacher. I never once thought I can't go back into a school. Like it just right. didn't. I went right back into a school and think about it. But when it happened in Aurora, Colorado at the movie theater, every time I went to the theater, I was looking over my shoulders and I was looking for the exit, who's sitting behind me. It really changed my experience of going to the movies. And so I started thinking about that a lot. And then I went on book tour for um, my novel, The Good Luck of Right Now. Um, this was a while ago. I think this was 2014. And I was invited to do this one book, one town event, Ambler, Pennsylvania. And I didn't know where the event was going to be. When I showed up, it was in this historic movie theater. And it's actually the theater that's on the cover. That, that is the Amber okay. Theater in Amber, PA. In the novel, the movie theater is called the Majestic Theater. It's fictional. Right. Um, and so I did this event at the Ambler. And it was a packed house. And I got up on stage. And I'm, I'm speaking to the audience. It's going very well. But there was this voice in my head. And it kept saying, how do you know that you're safe up here? And I was kind of the movie of that night. And so mm. there was a kind of split. And so there was Matthew Quick on stage engaging with everyone. And then there right. was this other Matthew Quick that was like scanning the audience, looking to make sure I was safe. It was this weird fractured moment. And after I did a, a signing line, which was great, there's a lot of people there and everybody was lovely and wonderful. There was no hint of danger in this moment at all, other than that what was constellating inside of me. I went to the bar across the street with the librarians and we had some drinks and then I came out and I was waiting for my car to pick me up and I'm looking at the theater and it's this beautiful cathedral-like theater from 1929, all restored, gorgeous. And I said, I have to write a novel about a movie house. And my original idea was that there was going to be some type of tragedy or shooting in the movie house and what would happen afterwards, you know, my cat, what, I didn't know, but that was just what I, I took home. And so I tried to write this movie house tragedy novel for for seven years. And I, I I just couldn't do it. I kept writing false starts and putting it away and quitting on it. And Alicia kept saying, give up on it. Cause you know, usually if I go back and 
work on things from the past, it, it never works out. Like just keep yeah. moving forward. But it haunted me. And um, about five years ago, uh, I got sober. And um, it was this kind of radical transition in my life. And um, when I got sober, uh, I started to feel a lot of things I hadn't been feeling when I was drinking. And uh, finally, some of my mental health problems um, started to build and escalate to the point where I needed to get to get help. And so I reached out and I went into Jungian analysis. And very early on uh, with my analyst, I started to bond with him in this way that was intense and scary and extremely helpful. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had an older man who was invested in not only trying to make me better, but trying to bring out the best version of Matthew Quick. And I became so worried that this was going to be taken away from me that I started to become paranoid about my analyst's health. And I started to worry that he was gonna get hit by a car or he was gonna have a heart attack, or maybe I would say the wrong thing in analysis and he would decide he didn't wanna work with me. It was this really big fear I had early on of being abandoned, about trusting somebody and being abandoned. And so, I worked through this with my analysts, so I'm still working with to this day. And at some point I started to say, what if I had a character who went through a tragedy? And I started thinking about my own movie house idea. What if you had a, you know, a horrific tragedy in a movie house? And on day one after that tragedy, his Jungian analyst ghosts him, abandons him. What would he do? And that was, the, once I had that idea, it was like, boom, I was off. And after seven years of not being able to figure out this novel and, you know, an intense, a year of very intense Jungian analysis, I was off and writing this book and, and it came out of me in a rush of about five weeks. And so, wow. you know, people say, how long did it take you to write this novel? You know, the answer really is, you know, eight years. Right. Like it was actually sat down and wrote. The, the first draft of the manuscript in, in, in a very short amount of time, once once it had, you know, come to fruition inside of me, it came pouring out. So that's the origin story for, for the, the novel. There's something great about what you said, because I can relate so strongly. Um, there are, I have a, a, a folder on my hard drive with story ideas. Yeah. Uh, of things that that ought to be amazing novels they are um yeah. i have premises that are just you know oh that that's gonna make an amazing novel and they just kind of never go anywhere you know um yeah. but I, but i have lots of great ideas in them and there mm -hmm. is something about trying to reach back and find you know that was such a great idea how come it won't go anywhere um because it's such a great premise and the character is so great. Um, but there, there is something about, there are pieces of those stories yeah. that are maybe meant to go somewhere else. Um, and I love that, that you had that same experience that, that the, the thing that you thought was the story wasn't the story at all, but it was kind of this catalyst to kick off this other story. Um, how do you, is, is there any, um, any way to know what things are going to work and you know is this is this a, a book idea is this just meant to be a piece of a of a greater puzzle somewhere else like how, how do you handle story ideas and 
and knowing whether something's worth going back to or, you know, it's meant to be something different? Well, the first thing I'll say is I'm very stubborn and I don't think that that <laughs> serves me very well. So if I have a story idea that I think is great, I, sometimes I will I will spend literally years on it trying to get yeah. it to work. And um, in the Jungian work I do, my analyst teaches me that um, if psyche supports something, it will be to do. If psyche doesn't support something, it will shut you down. And for me, I know that that's, that's true. So um, one metaphor that popped in my head as we were talking, it's almost like I have this junkyard of cars, you know, that don't mm -hmm. run, they, they won't drive. And if right. I go and insist on making one of these cars run, I will fail and fail and fail. But at one point, I might need a carburetor from that car, or I might need, you know, a hubcap or whatever I, I need to take from that that metaphorical car story, sure. I can grab that because I know where it is. So I can take that and put it into the new car I'm building and make make it work and I can make that new car run. I think sometimes when we're writing a story, we're just not ready to tell that story. We, we, we don't have the life experience. We don't have the lived, we might not have the, the maturity. It might not be the right time to tell that story. Um, but I think the only way you can tell is, is by sitting down and, and trying. You know, and, and, and being humble enough to fail. And so, you know, We Are the Light was a story that I tried to write for those seven years. And each time I sat down, I was convinced that I could do it. And it, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't do it. I didn't know that for this particular novel, even though it has nothing to do with sobriety, I needed to get sober. I needed to go into Jungian analysis. I needed to meet my analyst. I need to have all of those experiences before I had um, the insight, the vocabulary, um, the knowledge, the wisdom to to sit down and write this book. Uh, it just was not ready to come out of me seven years previously. So it's trial and error. It's it's um, you know the old saying of serve the story is trite. Like we all know that, but like we really are in service of the story. Like we can't make the story do something that it doesn't want to do. And sometimes the story right. just doesn't want to be born at that time. And you have to have uh, the humility to, to let that go. In my younger days, I would have rolled my eyes and laughed at all of this talk. You know, it, when I was a young man in my late twenties, early thirties, I would have said, that's ridiculous. You know, you can do, but I think uh, I, I've learned to take a more humble approach to storytelling and realize that there are certain stories that want to come out of me at certain times, and I have to have the humility to be in service of them and allow them to come through me the way that they need to come through and to serve that process. Yeah. Sometimes that process means writing false starts for seven years. It's not fun, but that's what it takes. But that's um, what it takes, right? Yeah. We Are the Light is told in a very unique way. It's told, uh, I'm, I'm checking my memory here, it's told exclusively uh, in a yeah. series of letters. Um, yeah. I had to make sure that you, you didn't uh, deviate from that in a chapter. But um, yeah. um, it's told exclusive, exclusively in a series of letters from uh, Lucas to his analyst. Yeah. And what was the, the idea behind uh, telling the story in that way? And did you, you know, when you kind of 
cracked that code, did you know that the entire book would be written that way? Or did you see it as a series of vignettes? How did that kind of start unfolding? Well, I was, you know, when I got sober, I, I, I went through an intense bout of writer's block. And I, I was someone who didn't believe in writer's block. And then, yeah. you know, I, I very famously said, you know, there's no thing as plumber. Like what people say, there's no plumber's block. It doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's only being lazy. And then it happens to you and you realize, you know, it is it's, it's serious. And I think yeah. that I've heard that said that writer's block is a failure of the ego. Um, I think for me, like alcohol was a, a big part of my writing process, you know, because it took a lot of strength to be vulnerable. And then I could always hide in the alcohol, you know, I could turn off those right. emotions and be safe. And so when I lost that safe place of drunkenness every night, I think I was scared and I was afraid to, to allow myself to go to the places that I previously went when I had been drinking every night. Uh, so I didn't know how to break out of this. And when I say I tried to break out of my writer's block, I sat down every single day for years at the computer for eight hours. And sometimes I couldn't even write a sentence. Um, and I was someone who would write easily 3,000 words, 4,000 words a day. And then all of a sudden I can't write a sentence in a day. It was emasculating. It was terrifying. Um, I didn't know how I was going to make my, my, my livelihood. It was, it was really a dark period. And so during this period, the one thing that I could do and I did do all the time was write people letters. I like to write handwritten notes. I write email letters. And so I was writing all the time. And Alicia said to me, you know, you can write these letters. You can't write a novel. Why don't you write an epistolary novel, you know, in letters, a book in letters? Maybe it'll work for you. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. It seems gimmicky. I already did that once with the good luck of right now. Not everybody likes epistolary novels. I do not want to do it. And then six months went by and my good buddy, Nick Butler, I think I think maybe you had Nick on the show, did you? Have? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you had Nick yeah, on Nick's the show. Nick's a great guy. Yeah, yeah he's, a good, he's a good friend of mine. I, I write him letters. And he said, you know, Matthew, you write me letters all the time. You know, why don't you write an epistolary novel? Why don't you? And I said, you know what, Nick, that's a great idea. I think I'm going to do that. And Alicia's head exploded. And she was yeah. so angry with oh. me. Oh, it's okay for him to tell you that. <laughs> gotcha. And I think it was just like, <laughs> it was seconding it. And I was, I had right. been worn down another six months, but I went down and I tried to write it and I just wrote dear Carl. And that was, it just started to come. And so I, I'd been blocked for so many years that I thought, I'm not messing with this. I'm just going to go with what the gods are going to allow me to do. Right. And so I started writing. Um, the one thing I really love about writing in the, the letter format is it's so intimate. And right. so in particular, Lucas is writing to his analysts about his mental health, about his life, about it. It's, it's almost like you're sitting in an analytic session with him. And he's sending these words out into the world and nobody is writing him back. And so as a reader, you're left with this, this diary of this really heavy psychic material. And there's that tension of will anyone reach back and help this man? So it almost creates this ticking clock of where we're, we're able to receive this, but we're not able to write back and there's the tension. And so it really, really worked in my opinion, you know, and, and it created a lot of tension and a lot of fuel for me to keep going and to keep inhabiting Lucas's mind and, and to 
to know what it feels like to want to communicate and to contact and to be so desperately giving the best of your soul to somebody um, and just waiting for that connection to come back. It was just, it was just so rich and it, it really, it really took me through. And I think for a lot of reasons, because I think for me, uh, particularly when I, I got sober and particularly when I was blocked, there was a lot going on in me that I think when I started talking to my analyst, it was just like, I just needed to, you know, to dump right. it all on him and to get it all out. And he was absorbing that. And so it, particularly in the early on in the analytic sessions, there was a lot of one way. It's not that way anymore. It's very back way. And so, you know, he became this kind of screen that I projected everything onto. And in essence, that's what Lucas does throughout the novel. Even though his analyst isn't there, he's not writing back. And so psychologically, it made sense. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the metaphor of, of going to the movies and literally projecting things onto the screen. Right. So um, it kind of projected and it kind of um, snowballed from there. Yeah. Um, do you find that writing in first person um, that there are certain voices that are more comfortable to put on. Um, you, you know, you, you told the story that as you're writing as Lucas and you, you decide to, to write these letters as him, yeah. um, that you kind of fall into that character. Um, I, I wrote a book um, that's called Writer's Block, and it's in the first person of a novelist who's stuck. And, and you figure out that he's got all these... Um, issues that he's dealing with and that the the problem is that he can't write it's that he can't you know get in touch with himself in any way yeah um i wrote sure. that the first person present which was a i was i, I kind of took that on more as a as an exercise really to see if mm -hmm. i could do it and i found that um that i got really close to that character closer than i had ever experienced before and and while he had was way different than me it was easy for me to fall into that voice. Um, yeah. Was it like that for you that, that you found yourself kind of falling into Lucas? And, um, it, you know, we, writers are the only people that you can have this conversation with, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. that the voices in their head become, you know, so real. Um, but, you know, we can talk to other writers about that. You know, what, what's sure. that process like for you when you kind of, embody this other person uh for lack of a better word well for me you know especially i write all of my nine novels are first person so i'm right. always looking for the voice and that was part of the reason why i was stuck for seven years is i just i couldn't get lucas's voice right um you know he's he's experienced a shooting at a movie theater and you know so there's a lot of options you know and so yeah. how does he respond um and so, you know, I tried angry, I tried funny, I tried, you know, dissociated, I tried, I tried all these different ways. And it took me seven years to kind of slip into, into his voice. And I think it wasn't until, um, you know, Lucas is dealing with the loss of his wife, the loss of community members. Um, and so I don't want to be inappropriate and compare this thing. But I think when, when I got sober, there was this loss of, of, a lot of things in my world. It's not the same thing, but metaphorically, I felt kind of removed and I didn't know who I was and I didn't know how to relate to the world. And so I think that allowed me 
to understand Lucas's psychology in a way that I didn't understand before I went through that process. And so I think that that allowed me to kind of find his voice. When I wrote The Reason You're Alive, um, I, I, I loosely based that off of my deceased uncle's um, Vietnam stories that he would tell me. And when he passed, the night before he passed, he called me and kind of tasked me with writing this book. And for a year, I had no idea how to do it. And I think it took me a year of grieving my uncle before I was able to slip into that voice. Now, the voice of that book isn't 100% my uncle Pete's voice, but people who knew yeah. Pete can tell that it was inspired by him. And I think I, I was mourning through that process, you know, and it was hard for me to even hear that voice without feeling a tremendous sadness that got in the way of writing that novel. But after maybe it was a year, year and a half, suddenly I was able to slip into that voice and feel like I could inhabit it without the horrific sorrow of mourning my uncle. And so it's different every time, you know, I, I go searching, almost fishing, you know, like casting a line into the psyche and trying to find a voice. And, um, you know, I think there's elements of myself and all of those voices, but I think that there's, it's much more than that. You know, it's, yeah. you, you're, you're trying to find something that's authentic and real that inhabits you for the telling of the story. And so I think part of that is, is finding that voice, but I think part of that is also cleaning out the inside of you so that it becomes this, this perfect host or vessel for the voice to live in while you're writing the book. And so if you have a lot of stuff going on inside, it might, there might not be room for that voice, such as when I was mourning my uncle, there was a lot of turbulence in there. It wasn't until I finished that emotional process that the voice could inhabit me and I could write that novel. Um, in the, the way the publishing landscape is uh, right now for, uh, for a lot of genres, um, series are, you know, uh, you know, publishers love series and they, they love to, uh, you know, if readers connect with one book, they want to continue on with those characters. You write standalones. Have, mm -hmm. have you ever had a story that, that you could see, like when you finished that book, the characters lingered or maybe you thought, I wonder what happens next with these people. Like, has that ever been a temptation with you? You know, only really one time I wrote a book called Every Exquisite Thing. Um, and in it, there's a, there's a novel within the novel. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the novel in the novel is called The Bubblegum Reaper. And it's, it's this book that these teenagers get obsessed with. It's this out of print novel. Yeah. And I had a plan to write The Bubblegum Reaper. I really wanted to do it. And so we talked to the publisher ahead of time. And they're like, sure, like if the book sells enough copies, but then the book was, it was successful, but not successful enough for them to go down that avenue. And I kind of lost interest in it. I, I don't know. Um, it's not that I wouldn't do it, yeah. but it's just, it's not something that I've, I've thought too much about. Like I never go back and say, oh, let's write Silver Linings too for the, you know, maybe people would like that. I just felt like that story was complete. It was finished. Yeah. Um, but I have nothing against series, you know, and yeah. I think, with the publishing landscape, it's really, I don't know that they like series so much as they like whatever sells, you know? So if, if the series yeah. sells a lot of copies, they love it, but the series yeah. doesn't sell a lot of copies. They don't like that series. So Yeah. True. True. Yeah. Um, 
Matthew, you know, this book's been off of your desk for a while. Um, did you, you know, when you finished this book, did you feel like you had gotten your mojo back? You know, you. Hmm. I think when I was writing this book, I was so high. Like it was, it just felt so good to be yeah. writing. And with the speed I was writing, I felt extremely confident writing this book. Um, and then you shift into editing mode and you shift into promotion mode and you go on book tour. And I wrote the screenplay for this, which I felt really good about that as well. Come down off the high and, you know, you've got to go inside and dig for the next novel, which is right. what I'm doing now. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a person. When I first started writing, my goal was to be a book a year novelist and, and in my early years and in my alcohol fueled years I, I accomplished that for for a good stretch but yeah. i think now in my in middle life in sobriety i'm i'm realizing that uh, there's some wisdom in 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 taking time to go in and, and to find what what you want to do and i think for my early career i really put career over mental health and so I would do anything to get that next book and try to get it out and to keep the career going. And now I think I've learned that uh, the work for me, at least at this point in my life as a novelist is excavating me, you know, to go inside and, and, mm. and figure out who I am. And I think I'm in a bit of a transition period right now where um, I'm five years sober and I'm, I'm just starting to understand what that really means. You know, I think I'm, I'm just thawing out with that. And I think also, you know, I'm going to be 50 this year, which is another turning point. And so I've gotten really curious as to what's next and what I want to put into the world. And not to be precious about it, um, but I'm not a young man anymore. I'm not go, go, go. Like, I'm not, let's see if I could do this. You know, right. I'm taking a more thoughtful tact with that. And... And that's been interesting. You know, I'm still in Jungian analysis, and that is a deep dive for sure and, into figuring out who I am and to cleaning up a lot of things. And, and so I'm not sure where that, that journey is taking me, but um, I'm, I'm curious to find out. Well, I, I know I and, and a lot of other people are really happy that the journey uh, – took you here and uh we are the light is available everywhere now um i'm ordering uh, a number of these to give us gifts to people because the, the book you. that much to me and i know it will mean that much to a lot of other people as well um it's available everywhere go visit your local bookstore and support local books um if, if you need to we'll put links in the show notes where you can grab it at amazon um audible too i'm sure um yeah. i haven't listened to the audio book but i'm i'm sure uh have right you actor luke kirby ah i bet that's amazing yeah so we'll put links to that as well um matthew for folks that are not familiar with all of your work and want to do a deep dive on all things matthew quick what's the best place for them to uh to venture over to online well my website is matthewquickwriter.com and i'm also recently just on substack so it's matthewquick.substack.com my substack is called There Will Be Mistakes. Uh, I write about the writing life, mental health, sobriety, all kinds of stuff. Nice. Uh, and if you, subscri you subscribe for free, and I send out personal essays a couple times a month. And if you want to subscribe paid, you can too, your choice. But uh, if you want to get to know me and what I'm about, that's probably the best place. 
I'm going to go subscribe uh, uh, right now. That sounds amazing. Great. Um, Please do. Matthew, this has been so much fun catching up. Thank you so much for taking time to drop by and to talk about We Are The Light. Yeah, my pleasure, Hank. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, this conversation. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.